Good morning, everybody. It's good to see your smiling faces. I love watching the little kids come in. It, uh, it's always nice to have a group I can identify with. Um, just a few announcements. See Linda Lafleur for your tithe statements, and that's assuming you tithe. Um, there is no youth choir practice today. Uh, we have some sickness in the family, so uh, we will not do that. Lord willing, we'll start next week. And then one final announcement. Um, we have traditions here, and I'm not going to act like Tevier or what, however you pronounce his name, what tradition. But one tradition we have is that we honor mommies that are going to have babies, so we're having crib showers. Um, we like to welcome babies that way, so uh, to give you some advanced time so you can purchase gift cards, diapers, baby-friendly wipes, other newborn items, and offer to babysit on Friday nights for a few months. Um, the Hargraves crib shower will be February 18th and 25th. That's the next two weeks, and then after that, the White's crib shower will be March 3rd. My birthday, so Andrew White is a good name. Andrea White's a good name, so, uh, but I'm sure you'll come up with your own. But your crib shower is going to be March 3rd and 10th. So ask moms and ask the mommies and, uh, and their husbands. That comes out crazy, but ask them what they want, because I'm so far beyond that. I don't know what to, what to do with babies except love them. So that's all my announcements that I stumbled through. So. Blake, I said, well, um, I wanted to look at John 15. And in fact, I invite you to turn there. I said, well, what verse did they use in, um, in our hymn? Because I'll put a verse sometimes with the, the hymn title. And he said, well, it was Luke 15.4. I didn't quite remember that, so I looked it up. Now, less my, And if I'm wrong on this, you all deal with me, because this is like the last second research here. But 15.4 is not it. So... Um, that Luke 15, 4 is something different. So here we found a mistake in the hymn book, but not in the Word of God, okay? But anyway, don't be uh, dissuaded by that, so that's good. They're actually referring to John 15, 4, and so I invite you to, to look at John. And to do this, just to prepare your heart to receive communion as we move forward here. We're going to have an open communion, so you don't have to be a member of the church, but you do need to be in the body of Christ. Have repented, believe, obedient in believer's baptism, and confess your sin. And we'll give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment before I pray. To prepare your heart to receive Christ. In fact, if you'll look in the worship folder in the front there, it, it says what we should do to examine ourselves, verse 28 in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine, and then so eat. So we're not trying to call you then to jump through any hoops. This examination is to examine your own heart, to see if you're in the faith, to confess your sin, to prepare to receive communion with Christ. 
Receiving it in an unworthy manner brings about damnation. And so it's a very serious time in which we take to remember Christ. When we sing this hymn here in a minute, Blake will have you seated so that you could be more reflective and sing about this concept of abiding in Christ. Jesus uses an analogy in John chapter 15, an obvious one, because he says, I am the true vine. Uh, By the way, that compares to the Old Testament in which Israel was called to be a vine. But Christ proved to be true, that is right, in all he did, in his obedience. I am the true vine. He says, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That, That is because they're not demonstrating the fruit of Christ in their life. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And this gives us a reason why we might have difficulty or suffering in this life to be more fruitful. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And here it is, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. This call to remembrance of Christ in our Holy Communion today is to be reflective. First, to examine your own heart to see if there's any evidence of real life being connected to that true, true vine. And how would it be demonstrated? Not by artificial fruit that's just stuck on externally, but something that by the power of the Spirit is produced from the inside and is made manifest in your own life. Examine your own heart to indeed see if you're in the faith. If so, then abide in him. Recognizing the pruning in this life is only to bring about greater fruitfulness in your life. You're not going to bring about fruitfulness in your life without abiding in Christ. So we're going to do this in remembrance of Christ. I'm going to give you a moment now, personally, privately, right where you're at, to examine your own heart. If you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, you can do so right now. Not to me, but to him. If you have sin to confess, you can do now. Confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Take a moment privately, right where you're at, to examine your own heart before Christ, And then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today recognizing We don't come to you through our merits, but through Christ, the one who is indeed the true vine. I pray for all your people that we might be reminded of our connection to Jesus Christ, our Lord. For those that might find themselves even this day outside of Christ, I pray that you'd bring them in today. Change everything about who they are. May the love of Christ flow through their own heart. May it be demonstrated in that which is fruit, spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, 
in all the various aspects of Christ demonstrated in the flourishing, may be demonstrated in our love for one another, may it be demonstrated in our fullness of joy in you, not in circumstances, not in situations, but truly a deep-seated joy in Christ, in Christ alone. We're thankful for the gift that you have granted to us. Ultimately, the, the faith to believe, the response of repentance as well, to the recognition that you will receive everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. What a great gift. As we set aside time now to think about our abiding in Christ, Father, I pray that you'd make it really meaningful. May the symbols that you have granted to us to provide that remembrance, may it be significantly known to each one today in the way we need to commune and abide in Christ this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. As Pastor mentioned, we'll remain seated, but turn to hymn number 88, and we'll contemplate and think on this hymn, Abide With Me.
cup, of course, reminds us of Christ's death and the bread of his life. Jerry, would you bless the elements today? Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for these elements we have which represent the body and the blood of Christ, the body broken for us, and the blood to, of Christ that washes away all our sins. Father, we give you praise and honor and thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What we're going to have you do here in just a moment is we'll start from this side, then the middle, then this side. And I want you to stand for those receiving to come up here, take both elements, then circle around, return to your seat, and we'll wait and eat together. So let's go ahead and stand this side and receive your elements. I mentioned uh, two elements here, the bread and the cup. The, the bread really symbolizes Christ's life. It is to bring that to remembrance, as the scripture says. And I like to often point out when we're having Holy Communion that really the, the only way that we could stand before God, and, and I'll mention it again in the sermon today, but for you to think about, it is Christ. And as we read in John 15, he is that which is true. 
And the true is not just real and authentic, it is true in that he actually accomplished what is needed. You will not stand before God in your own merit, in your own righteousness. There's only one way to stand, and that is in Christ, in Christ alone. That's why Christ came, took on human flesh, lived among us to merit that which needs to be able to stand before God, perfect holiness. So receive this in remembrance of Christ. Christ did not just give us one symbol of remembrance on that Passover night before he would die to atone for our sin. He would also have the cup. It would be the cup of blessing in the Passover feast that he changed its meaning, really, to communicate what it always pointed to. That is the blessing in Christ. You see, we, we are not blessed. We, we don't come initially in the world as blessed. We come as cursed. And it is through the blessing of Christ and only Christ that we would be blessed. The, specifically, this blood is, is representative of Christ's blood, that is his death, which atones for our sin. And because of that, for all of those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, put their faith in him, his blood will then cover all their sin. There are many accusations against you. They will not stand because Christ has bore the penalty of us all. Receive this in remembrance of him. I'm going to call you now as Blake comes to lead us to stand and sing two hymns. And if you notice the ones that he chose today, hymn six, How Great Thou Art, that looks at the very majesty of God. And in his greatness, his sovereign power. We, we call it his transcendence. But God isn't just transcendent, and he certainly is. He's a creator and sustainer of all things. But beyond that, he has condescended to us, and that's this next hymn, that you could actually be near to him. How could you be near? How, how could this contrast? It is through this person of Jesus Christ who we just remembered in this communion. It is through Christ, then, that we can draw near to God. I hope those thoughts ring true in your mind as you stand to worship Christ today. How great thou art. Hymn number six. So I'll stand together. Psalm 86, you are great and perform wonders. Number six, how great thou art.
543, 543, nearer my God to thee. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Psalm 73, you but I really love that hymn how great thou art Amen. creation itself declares the creator we continue our reading this morning in the book of Acts I'll be reading from the pew Bible and we'll begin on page 934 that is Acts chapter 24 beginning in verse 22 and we'll finish up on into chapter 25 We'll read through verse 12. And that's Acts 24, beginning in verse 22. I have a, a lot that I'd like to say this morning, so I'll try to keep it short. But the stage is mine, so to speak. So, This uh, book of Acts here, this is it's a continuation of uh, the historical account uh, written 2,000 years ago. And... At that time, it was a real political, politically mixed bag as far as the political and legal structure, and it can be confusing in some ways. Um, there's several layers of leadership and authority uh, in, in um, 
Jerusalem at the time. And you see many corrupt political actors and, and just a lot of corruption and confusion, things that don't really make sense. Uh, and I'm just really glad that we've uh, cleaned all that up uh, over the last 2,000 years um, with our advanced intellect and moral superiority here in the 21st century. But we're reading about Paul, and Paul is a, a dual citizen of sorts. He is legally a Roman citizen, uh, and he has certain rights and, and legal protections that are due to him. Uh, but he was also born religiously and culturally of the Jews. Uh, and he's subject to certain Jewish authority and, and, and certain Jewish laws. And, but um, those are, to my understanding, were superseded legally because uh, Rome, their authority, uh, rules over uh, Israel uh, ultimately. And we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But I want to get to the point that despite his political and, and legal issues that Paul finds himself in, uh, he remains clear in his mind and, and strong in his faith. He is looking always ahead, and this is an example to us, looking ahead to his citizenship in the eternal kingdom. And he's subject to, ultimately, the pure and perfect king, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll see here at the end of our reading that Paul uh, ultimately had to appeal to Caesar but in reality, he was ultimately trusting himself to the will of God in his life. Read with me here as we begin in verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem to Caesarea, and the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tri tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, 
the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around them, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. I've also brought with me this morning Spurgeon's Morning by Morning, which is read from a lot. Um, it's very well known. I'm sure many of you uh, have this. Uh, may have even read today's passage before, before uh, now, but it speaks to the same idea that, that we're talking about here of regardless of what you're going through, trust yourself to the hand of God. And I'm going to try to read this quickly for you, and then we'll pray. Believer, look back through all your experience and think of the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. Now he has fed you and clothed you every day, how he has suffered your poor behavior, how he has put up with all your murmurings and all your longings after the flesh pots of Egypt, how he has opened the rock to supply you and fed you with manna that came down from heaven. Think of how his grace has been sufficient for you in all your troubles and how his blood has been a pardon for, to you in all your sins. His rod and his staff have comforted you. When you have then reflected upon the love of the Lord, let faith survey his love in the future. For remember that Christ's covenant and blood have something more in them than the past. He who has loved you and pardoned you will never cease to love and pardon. He is Alpha, and he shall be Omega also. He is first, and he shall be last. Therefore remember, when you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil, for he is with you. When you stand in the cold floods of Jordan, you need not fear, for death cannot separate you from his love. And when you come into the mysteries of eternity, you need not tremble. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, soul... Is, it not, is not your love refreshed? Does not this make you love Jesus? Does not a survey of the vastness of God's love, loving care, stir your heart and compel you to delight yourself in the Lord your God? Surely, as we meditate on the love of the Lord, our hearts burn within us and long to love him more. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you this morning for this Lord's Day, for another opportunity to gather with believers, to sing praises to you, to sing praises for all that you are to us, all that you have done for us, and all that we trust you to do in the future. And God, I pray that as we continue um, in the study of your word, as we hear the, the preaching that has been prepared, God, that we would have open hearts and minds and, and hear what you have to say to us this morning from your word. And, and God, I pray for the salvation of those that may hear me now and not know Christ as their Savior. We pray that you would save them all. Father, you are indeed mighty to save, and we believe this and know this. And But God, I pray for every one of us here who uh, continues on in, in this life, in this process of sanctification, God, that we would be made more and more like our Savior uh, even this day, that, uh, that what is is here to be preached this morning would prick our hearts and 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 encourage us to make changes as necessary and god we ask your blessing over what uh, you have given to us that we freely give um on to the uh, the needs of the ministry and, and father we ask that you use those funds as you will uh to further your kingdom here and god we uh, we pray as we go from this place another week uh, begins right here that uh, you would give us opportunity to share our faith and encourage one another and and um, and lord there are many um, thoughts and concerned on the mind of of your people lord so many things that burden us and i just ask god that whatever it is that we may be dealing with that we just cast those things at your feet that we trust ourselves to you uh, in all that we do, that um, that we would, uh, as we've seen from Paul, and ultimately as we've seen from, from Christ, that that we just submit ourselves to Your will, and and we try to conform ourselves to that. And uh, and God, we look to um, to that eternal kingdom that uh, You have so uh, graciously and mercifully uh, called us to. And and Lord, we just praise You and thank You for that today. And I ask all of these things in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen.
Please stand with me once more and take your hymn books and turn to number 591. Pure in heart, O God, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 5110. 591. Amber and Church. In that hymn, I hope that is your prayer, and we'll address that to some degree from Hebrews chapter 10 today. Notice in the hymn, the hymn was a call to a purer heart, that is a heart that is cleansed, that is a heart that is set apart to God, a heart that is steadfast. This hymn is loosely based on Psalm 51, where David confesses his sin and calls on God to cleanse his heart. And I hope that is your prayer today as well. That cleansing, we use a term for it, and we call it sanctification. And we're talking about that from Hebrews chapter 10, and most notably today we'll focus on verse 14. Verse 14 mentions this idea about Christ who sanctifies his people. His people are, note this, being sanctified. So that's an ongoing process. There is an aspect in in which, of course, this is positional. For those that come to Christ, you're made holy in Christ. 
But this being sanctified has the idea of, really, I would say two things. One, becoming more in practice like who you really are in position. And that also he is keeping you that way. In other words, this being sanctified isn't for those that are in Christ. They'll never be unsanctified in that sense before God. They may sin, but if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you. There's that terminology there from all unrighteousness. This righteousness is required to be able to stand before God. In chapter 12, the preacher here in Hebrews is going to appeal to his audience by calling them in verse 14 of chapter 12 to strive with peace. Listen to this. Strive for peace with everyone. And then he adds, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, to be able to see God, to stand in his presence, that's the idea of seeing God, you're going to have to be perfect. That is, you're going to have to be holy. You're going to have to be righteous to be able to stand before God. And without it, you're not. And he has been preaching about that all along the way. It's essential. But notice how it is manifest. It isn't just that... God grants you this privilege of what we would call salvation. Oh, no. It's much more than that. Salvation includes this idea of sanctification, being set apart or being made holy in a practical sense. You're going to have to strive for that, though, in your own life. It isn't, though, it comes naturally. It comes instead, I would say, supernaturally. This is God's grace at work in the heart of the believer. And the striving for this isn't some calculation and some effort from the flesh, but it is from the Spirit. It's a, it, it is accomplished through, and we've, we've already sung about it and talked about it, and that is through abiding in Christ. You abide in Him, and there'll be more evidence of Christ in your life. And what is Christ? He's holy. And so here's a call then to, for those within the church to actively strive for this to be manifested in their life. And here, the descriptive of what that might look like, what would sanctification look like in your life, that you would be at peace with everyone. <laughs> okay. You see, it's, it's the flesh, that sinful flesh, that creates division. And the sinful flesh will not create unity, but Christ not only can, but Christ will. Jesus would preach to his disciples and tell them in Matthew chapter 5 that blessed are the, remember, peacemakers. Okay. It isn't because they make peace or therefore blessed. It is they are blessed by God. That is, they are regenerate and therefore a demonstration of that in their life is a lack of contention with everyone. Now, I understand there may be moments and times of contention, that's for sure. And then we recognize it. Convicted by the Holy Spirit. Confess our sin. And seek reconciliation. It's characteristic of those that are in Christ. They're about making peace with one another. 
And that's where our unity is. It's ultimately in Christ and Christ alone. It is Christ who accomplishes this in a very practical way that is manifested in our own life. I think for the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and just touch on a few verses from Hebrews 10. We've read through this text, this section. I'm going through 1 1 through 18. But I won't read all of it. I'll just highlight a couple points we want to make because then I'm going to draw your attention to Colossians 3 as a cross-reference and to emphasize and spend a little bit more time there this morning. But for now, let's root this here. Note here in, uh, in verse 1, he's preaching to the, the Hebrews in his audience. They have a desire to go back to cultural religion, if you will, as opposed to remain with Christ. And, and he said these things were good, but they're a shadow, verse 1, of the things to come instead of the true form. And here's this word used. I hope, you, I hope this rings the bell from our reading in, in John 15 about Christ being the what? The true. That, that, is, that, that is the fulfillment, the one who does so in perfection. These things point to the true form of these realities. These, it can, these things that point to that which is true and real, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, and here it is, make perfect those who draw near. We spent a lot of time, two weeks already, emphasizing this idea of making perfect and alluded to some aspects of how it's demonstrated in your life. But I think what... what Uh, You must know, and what he wanted them to know, that that perfection is not only required to be before God, but it is only through one source, that is Jesus Christ. Not a religious system, not the cultural ideas about whatever makes things right. The only thing that brings about that which is not close to being good, but absolutely perfect, is Jesus Christ. And it is through him that he enables you to, note this, draw near. You may not think that to be a big deal, but it is a big deal. In other words, to be enabled to be in union with God. It is only Jesus Christ who would accomplish this. Then he goes on to describe those symbols that pointed to Christ. He says he has no pleasure in them, verse 6. Pleasure in the sense it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't perfect, it doesn't accomplish. Uh, Otherwise, that system, it wouldn't have continued. Instead, that is being done away with, as he says. He establishes uh, the the second in verse 9. And by that, we will have been sanctified how that is set apart and made holy how one way through the offering of the body of jesus christ and note this once for all it is christ's accomplishment that brings about the perfection required to be in the very presence of god not by these symbols but by the substance who is jesus christ that is the true one now christ after he offers his sacrifice, he rises from the dead and he trains his disciples who he will send out as apostles or sent ones 
and he does so over a period of time, and then he ascends to the majesty on high, and he's just waiting in time for gathering of all of those who would confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and when the final one's done, the end appears. By the way, that could happen at any moment. It could happen before I finish the sermon, and even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But notice here, why we're waiting, and Christ is waiting in that sense, verse 13, for by, and here's where we want to emphasize, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm going to emphasize this concept of being sanctified. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you would grant us wisdom from your word, insight, illumination, understanding. May you send the Holy Spirit that we might hear what Christ would say to the church even this day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I've already pointed out, this phrase here, being sanctified, it is through Christ's atonement that, does, that brings about not the possibility, note this, of being sanctified. And remember, sanctified means to be set apart, made holy, made perfect. He doesn't bring out like the, the possibility, but he is going to actually accomplish this both now and in the eternal state. The grace of God in salvation is greater than whatever you imagine. You say, well, that can't possibly change the very uh, heart of that person. That's just a wicked person. Oh, yes, he can. And it's really simple. We just proclaim Christ, and we trust him. And Christ is a powerful agent that will not only cleanse us positionally, but cleanse us and cause us to demonstrate that practically in our own life. The Apostle Paul preached in, to the church at Rome, and he says, I'm not ashamed of this good news, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. By the way, salvation includes it all, not only free from the penalty of sin, which is death, but beyond that, to change the very heart, that is to sanctify all of those who believe and put their trust in God through this good news, the gospel. It is by the way, and it is for everyone who believes. It isn't for a select few. This is why we preach to all men and call all people to come to Jesus Christ. In his context, it was to the Jews first, of course, and then to the Greeks, that is to every other ethne, that is nations of people. This is one gospel for all men, mediated through the Jewish nation, Christ, who would come and die and, and then create not only the power to, as we might think of it, save us from our sin, but also sanctify us from it. Not only setting us apart from eternal judgment to be in perfection with him in the future, but even now, and that's what I want to emphasize today, as you think about the position, if you have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to think more in terms of the power of this gospel, which includes this idea of sanctification even now. And so we're calling then, like this preacher did in chapter 12, as I pointed out, just one idea, and there's many admonitions along the way, so let your life characterize who you really are. And I think fundamentally that is how we have to root this idea of practical sanctification. That is, to live a life that glorifies, and another way to express glorify, you might say honors Christ. Or here's another way, resembles or looks like Jesus Christ. Remember, the Apostle Peter, <clears throat> in his epistle, he would call us in verse 21 of chapter 2, in his first epistle, he says, we've been called to this. So what have you been called to? Not, not only to an external, eternal state to live with God, but also in this life, because Christ demonstrated in his life how to live the Christian life. And what was his life characterized by? Yeah, much suffering and dishonor, if you will, in many respects. He left you an example, he says, that you might follow in his steps. That is, live like Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified. This being sanctified is being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul would tell the church at Corinth several times to follow Christ, and he would put it this way. The first time in chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians, he would say, be imitators of me, and lest you think it's pride that he's saying, oh, I've accomplished this, he would clarify it for us in chapter 11 when he says, follow me as I'm following Christ. That's the full context of it. You see, here Paul lived in a growing sanctification, that is, a growing closer to Christ, being conformed more in the image of Christ, and God used him in his life to do what? To bring about glory and honor to himself? Oh, that Paul is a great person. No, he gave a model, a real model for those with, that were around him on how to follow Christ and what it means to follow Christ. Paul doesn't do it perfectly, and he'll be the first to admit it. He describes his wrestling with uh, that uh, holiness and perfection in Christ in chapter 7 in Romans. You can look at it at some future time. He, he concludes when he considers himself, that is, from his fleshly standpoint, oh, wretched man that I am. And, and to, to minimize some of the potential pride, I mean, here was a guy that had all kinds of accolades. God did allow him to be suffered, a suffering for which he prayed that he would take away. But God told him that in his particular case that he was granted this to diminish, to, to diminish the potential pride. Humility is much better, and sometimes it comes through suffering. And his answer, Christ's answer to him specifically was, my grace is sufficient for you. I want to live like Christ, do you? If you're a Christian, I suppose all of us want to. If we really took the time and stopped to examine our day-to-day, -day, maybe our actions... Well, they didn't quite measure up to what I would like. 
In fact, they don't really look like the footsteps of Christ as much as I'd like them. Maybe we get a little bit more introspective and think about our attitudes, and we would like those to be adjusted <laughs> a little bit, to, to exemplify Christ more in our attitude. And maybe even our passions, I'll call them affections. That way I can alliterate, and there's your three points for your sermon today. Your, your affections, that is, really the passions of your heart. I mean, what, what are you drawn to? That, that which is good and virtuous and lovely? Oh, I want to be. But somehow I keep drifting over and pursuing that which is vice, not virtue. Well, I think most of us, is, and as I wrestle with this text and thinking about being sanctified, we, we, we want you know, our, our affections, we want our attitudes, we want our actions all to be conformed to Christ. I mean, if I, you know, if, if, if I could just press a button to make it happen, I, I would be perfect in Christ right now and every minute of the day. But I wrestle with it. And I know you do too. So how is this going to happen? Well, Christ is working in the heart of the believer. He does use means, and I might get to him today or maybe next week. We'll see. He uses means to accomplish his will, but I think primarily and fundamentally to keep you from just absolutely going nuts about this is to recognize that Christ will do this in your life. It's a process. There, is, there will be some progress. And the, mo- the longer that you're in Christ, the more you'll be able to look back, hopefully, and examine how you were in time and see, yeah, I've made some progress. You'll probably be like me and say, well, I should have been a lot further along. <laughs> you know. But one step forward is good. I mean, you could look at the disciples, for example. Um, Peter is a good example. In the Gospels there, uh, quite impetuous. I mean, he would say the right things one time and then the wrong things the next, right? Um, he, he actually denied the Lord and, at, at one point. Not, not just one time, but he did it three times. He was convicted of it, and he broke down and cried, and he struggled with that. And In fact, I, I've, I guess you can kind of sense, you read through the Gospels and think, look at Peter's life and you know, he finally got broken to the point and he recognized, he said, I don't know if God could do anything with me at all. And Christ meets with him. And that was part of his time post-resurrection. And he asked Peter, said, do you love me? Peter recognizes he's sovereign Lord. He says, you know I love you. Speak my sheep. Do what you're supposed to do. And he asked him a second time. You love me? Peter gives the same response. You you, you know. Jesus says, do the work of the ministry, what I've called you to do. And he asks him a third time. And if you read through it, and and particularly the wordplay, I'm not, uh, I didn't mean to exegete that passage, but you're familiar with it. At the third time, you you almost, in, in in the grammatical structure, in the word order there, He's almost to a frustrated point. He said, I, I don't know, Lord. I, I, guess, I, I guess really my love is so weak. I don't even know if we're just friends. But you know, that's the direction of his heart. That's a passion. And Christ restores him. Says, you know, you, you can feed my sheep. 
Peter had to be had to, to learn the lesson not to rely on his own self, his own flesh to accomplish this. This is what Christ would do. And even when you would go astray, Peter, I'm going to grab you and draw you back. And you're going to do what I have called you to do. Not what you imagined, maybe something totally different than what you imagined at the moment. But it, it revolves around your personal relationship ultimately with Christ. Uh, we alluded to it in, in the John 15, didn't we? Abide in me. That, that's the idea. A, a true, genuine connection begins. Right? And then the increasingly abiding in Christ, that results in a greater degree of what we would call fruitfulness, or another way to explain that would be sanctification. It comes about through Jesus Christ, a true connection, and then a true abiding in him. Allow his words of Christ then to dwell in your heart. Uh, I told you we'll look at Colossians, and, and that we will, because I think this breaks it down pretty good in, in a way we can think of. We, we alluded to some degree last week, but I'll draw your attention to it again as a good reference. Colossians chapter 3, and I'll just walk through it today because <coughs> I want you to think through the text. Take it home with you and spend some time on it. Allow Christ's words to abide in your heart. This is a further explanation of how I see this idea of practical sanctification working out in your life that begins with your connection, a true connection with Christ at the very beginning. You must be alive in Christ. And so he begins that way to this, and this is a letter to the church at Colossae. Paul's writing, it parallels with Ephesians, but we'll stay here. If you then, verse 1, have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This raising with Christ is another way to talk about who you are in Christ if you have repented and believed on Christ. Remember, you're, you're buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So he's talking about, first and foremost, <coughs> to the church of the regenerate, not the church of those who come and attend and see what's going on. He's talking about a real and vital union, and that's where sanctification begins. You must be united to Christ. All right, so for those that are united to Christ, then he calls their attention to do what? To seek the things that are above. Th think as contrasted to earthly things. Okay? He's not suggesting you neglect your responsibilities, things that you have to do day to day, all of that. It's just what is the priority of your life? He would, Jesus would say in teaching this disciple and others, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What he's saying is that is your priority. He's not suggesting that you just drop all your other responsibilities. You have them. It's a matter of prioritizing. What is most important? Seeking the things that are above. Where Christ is then seated at the right hand of God. And 
remember the preacher of Hebrews already said that in the first chapter, I think it was verse 3, some of the fact, or, or maybe later 5, any case, you can look it up. Christ atones for our sin, and then he what? He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's the point. The point is Christ is in charge. He's in authority. He's in there right now. So the state of mind then to, if you want to see sanctification worked out in your life, number one, be connected to Christ. Number two, put your mind there too. Your mind is so easily distracted by a lot lesser things. And the call is on a regular basis to think about your union with Christ who has uh, accomplished all that is required and is sitting in the, how about this, victory seat, just waiting for things to unfold. He's already in the seat of power and he can accomplish that. And then just a different way to phrase the same thing. He's contrasting earth and heaven. Set your mind, verse 2, on things that are above then and negatively, not on things that are on the earth. I want to argue with you this, that it requires for this practical sanctification to be worked out in your life, you have to have that perspective, a heavenly one. I mean, it, it, it's so easy, easy to be distracted by, and critical things at time, I understand, different things you might be going through, different conflicts, all kinds of things that are part of this temporal world. They're not eternal. They will pass, as difficult as it might be. Well, what's, what's the reality? The reality is our eternal union with Christ in absolute perfection. So let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, as Luther would say in his hymn. Right? Look to Christ. That's what's most important. Have a heavenly perspective. And then he calls for that heavenly perspective once again. Do you see verse 3? He says, well, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Talking again about the union of the believer in absolute perfection. Who's the you who died? The old self. It's not me anymore. Such were some of you. I'm not characterized that way. Get your mind right. Okay? Whatever past you have, it's, it's gone in Christ. Right now, you, you, in that sense, you have a clean slate. Oh, in this temporal world, yes, you may have to have some responsibilities for things that you do. That you, you may bear some temporal scars in this life, some things that really hurt by things that you do. But before God, positionally, it's absolutely, what's the word? Perfect. You got to know that. Okay? Otherwise, you're going to just run around and be depressed all the time. Again, I'm not suggesting you go willy-nilly by any means. This is just a different perspective to, to recognize the real you, who you really are. You're in Christ. Your life is, is hidden in him. There's no condemnation in Christ because you, you, you're hidden. God's not going to condemn you. you. You may feel temporal judgment, for sure, but not eternal. And then here, then, is what this one who has their mind set on heavenly thinks about constantly. When Christ, when Christ, verse 4, who is your life, appears, 
then you will also appear with him in glory. Do you see that statement here? Two things to note. What? One, when Christ, who, who is your life, that's what it means to be a Christian. Okay? It isn't just a confession that you make. It isn't just some ideas that you agree with. Christ is your life. So ask yourself, is that my life? Am I attached to this vine, the true vine, that is Christ and him alone? Is, is this how I see myself? <coughs> is Christ who I long for? And, and those Affections can be increased. That's the idea of being sanctified. There should be something deep inside that has a different desire. And we'll talk about how to make that grow and flourish. Because what it's going to do, just jumping ahead in John 15, he says, you know, it's joy. (laughs) He says, my joy I leave with you. My joy that I give you. That's what you're going to have. And joy is different than happiness. Happiness is connected to circumstances. Joy is connected to Christ. Okay? That's only where real joy. We're talking about eternal joy that transcends anything that is a temporal. Because notice here, <clears throat> then, when Christ comes, looking for the appearing of our, of, our, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he appears, then, note verse 4, then you will appear with him in glory. You're not by yourself. You're not standing there alone. United to Christ, then you can say, I'm with him. And no one's going to ask you, oh, okay, why should I let you into heaven? If you did, you could say, well, I'm with him. But that's not what it is. He's with you. You get in because of Christ. You think Christ would appear in glory? Of course. Glory is the perfected state. We define it often as the the beauty of God's divine perfection. It's really hard to quantify because we, we only know shadows of glory, symbols of it. But this is true glory. The psalmist would say, in your presence is what? Fullness of joy. Now, you know joy. You've experienced it, but you haven't experienced it fully. I don't care what kind of joy you might have had, because you know why? It runs out. And you've never hit the top. And I, I would argue in our sinful state, we couldn't experience the fullness of joy anyway. We would have to be perfected to be able to handle that much joy. I used to say sometimes it's like an eternal jaw drop, (laughs) gasping. The the difference is you will be enabled to enjoy it in an increasing capacity. No wonder we're looking for our blessed hope and eternal joy in Christ. All right. I went through all that to emphasize the fact, beloved, You first need to be connected to Christ. You really need to be raised with him truly in Christ. You should sense it to some degree that you have different affections, that you're actually looking to him. 
But based then on that position in Christ, then here's the call to exemplify this practically. And this is not for the special people. Not just the Pauls. This is even for the church, a corrupt church like Corinth, who had a lot of problems. Paul calls them to sanctification when he says, imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. For them, they needed some sort of role model because everybody was doing the wrong thing there. It's, it's awful what goes on in that particular church as Paul tried to correct them. So this is for the whole church then. <clears throat> he says, to do what? This is not out of the flesh. This is out of the spirit, a regenerate heart, the one who is abiding in Christ. Now jump to verse 5 here in Colossians 3. And here is the practical example of what it looks like when Christ works in the affections of your heart in a practical way. He says, put to death what, what is earthly in you. See? Earthly is contrast to which that which is heavenly. Earthly, in this sense, is that which is cursed in this earth and in this life, which we have a lot of it. This is what you must do to put your um, thoughts and affections towards heaven is then kill what is earthly in you. This is an active engagement here. And this is addressed to those who are sanctified in Christ, positionally perfect and righteous, who have died and have risen. That's who it's to. So it's a command and a call because of that to actively engage in killing sin. I wouldn't put it this way. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. That's a mindset you have to have in this life. This isn't a one-time event, by the way, because you live day after day in this temporal life. It's calling for an active engagement, a hostility against sin. And not so much, it's fine to address the sins in others and you need to examine yourself first, Galatians 6, 1. But the, the call here, ultimately, is to examine your own heart first. To engage in it. And he, and he enumerates a few of them. This isn't all. This is just giving you an example. First one is sexual immorality. Interesting, it is first on the list. <laughs> Because it is a great problem then and now. It, it's taking God's design outside of how he has ordered it. And can I tell you this? How he has ordered it brings about fulfillment and flourishing. Can I tell you this? Any other way brings about failure and futility. It isn't that he put these boundaries in because he's a prude. It's because he wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to enjoy life. You say, well, I've already blown it. That's why he says confess your sin. And recognize that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin 
and cleanse you from un, all unrighteousness. You say, but, but I did it again. Okay, 70 times 7. And if you keep the calculator on that, you're going to forget it. The whole point is, is grace is greater than all your sin. You say, well, then, if, if that's the case, then, I, then, then how does that curtail me? Because you really don't understand what grace is. You can't continue in it, that's why. It would be like a dead per I mean, a live person, should I say, being buried in a coffin in a ground. They're going to keep, sorry to be so morbid, I just thought off the top of my head. So if I hide the children, sorry. But if you're there in a box somewhere, let's say, in a room, you're going to keep clawing at the box until you can get out because you're alive. And those that are alive in Christ are going to fight sin. Now, you might be weakened by various things. We use that by analogy, but, it, but there will be a struggle there of some sort in some fashion. So th this, is a, this is a strong one. And, and then I'll, I'll not enumerate each one here, but impurity, anything that, that, uh, that um, pollutes your, your soul, your body, and your mind. Passion, he's talking about not those passions which are good and ordered, but disordered. <clears throat> Evil desire, he would say. And, and, and then covetousness is even thrown on there. Covetous is, you know, I, I, I got to have that. I want this. I don't want you to have it. I want it. Notice here, all of it is classified as idolatry. Fiddling around with any of these things, you understand, is idolatry. And what a great way to define it. That is, the passions of the flesh, the temporal earth, if you will, things that aren't from above. They're, they're idolatry and could be thought and should be thought of that way. Oh, well, I don't have this little object that I set up and bow down to. Well, good for you. That doesn't mean you're not an idol worshiper. And for the most of us, the idol worshiping is our own heart it is our own sinful passions and he's enumerating a few of those to get you to think in broader terms that that setting up the little object here and and bowing down to it if you will th that kind of idol worship that we might think about really that is just a expression of superstition if you will rather than faith and trust in a real and holy God. These things are idolatry, he says, because engaging in them is a willful rebellion against God and the order that he has designed and put together for your flourishing, for your help. They're, they're, these things are idolatry, he would say. And to engage in them as a believer, then, will not lead to sanctification. In fact, it leads to rebellion against God and failure. You want me to give you an example from the very beginning? And this is how it works, beloved. Satan will 
influence your thoughts, if you will, communicate ideas well, it's, um, it's not so bad. He did so in the garden, you remember? God had established these rules and order to bring about what? Human flourishing. They're in the garden. We call it the Garden of Eden. He gave them one rule. Don't eat of that tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because God is mean? No, he gave them a whole garden full of all kinds of delights. They had it all. But if you, if you disobey that rule, it breaks all the rules. And will lead to your demise. So a loving God establishes rules. Rules that really are just a reflection of his design. God could have designed things differently if he wanted to. In fact, he could have asked you about it. But then he'd be an idol worshiper. So what does Satan say in Genesis chapter 3? In verse 5, he tells a half-truth. And he questions the very motives of God. God knows that when you eat of it, I'll quote it for you, Genesis 3, 5. He, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It is true that if they disobey God in his rule, that their eyes would be opened and they would know good and evil. And it is true that God knows good and evil. But I said it's a half-truth, and a half-truth, as my wife, our resident theologian, would say, is what? whole lie. <laughs> She's told me that before. I won't tell you those occasions. <clears throat> I've since confessed. <clears throat> In any case, what's a lie about it? Because God does know about sin, but he doesn't know it experientially. That's different. We're not God. So taking on those things outside of the bounds of what he has ordered, then we experience that which brings about failure. And God doesn't do that. Even God incarnate in Jesus Christ when he came here lived among us. He was in the world, but he wasn't of it. It had nothing in him, you see. He didn't engage in it experientially. And that's what they did in plucking off the fruit and eating it. They experienced it. And it brought about what? Corruption. And you know the rest of the story. Sin is very destructive. All forms of it. All forms of it. You want to know what it is? Read his word. Most of it we intuitively know, but we like to rationalize around it so that somehow we can make our practices seem acceptable. 
because they are acceptable with one another. They are acceptable within our culture. They're, they're acceptable by a lot. But the only one that matters would be God. And furthermore, you can do those things that are acceptable to the culture, to the public, to friends and family and to whoever. It really doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is, is it acceptable before God? And God has installed these boundaries, however you wish to call them, his rules to bring about that which is life, to bring about good fruit, not corrupt fruit. I don't know if I'll finish this Colossians passage, so you have to read it. Look at verse 6, though. And I think this is a great warning and hopefully motivational to engaging in sanctification. And I guess I'll have to pick this up and one more aspect next week. But look at this, verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That ought to be a great warning sign for engaging in those earthly passions, if you will, that do not bring about sanctification and holiness. Because it, it isn't just that it's corrupting in and of itself, that God's wrath is necessarily displayed against it. it, it it's like the cleaning out of a garden. You, you've got to pull the weeds out. Because life will not flourish, uh, it'll be choked out by all the weeds. So his wrath, and here the wrath ultimately is, is not talking about the discipline of the, the believer, which he's going to talk about back to Hebrews in Hebrews 12. Here, wrath is talking about eternal judgment. If, if your life is characterized as, an un, as engaging in those practices that are unholy, if you will, not sanctified, you, you, you very well could be experiencing the wrath of God now, and you will ultimately experience it. So it's a great warning that, that is given here in Colossians about the wrath of God that is coming. And the call then is to do what in verse 5? Because of the, God's wrath that is being revealed the call is then kill it kill that sin because that that will expose you to the very wrath of god you know you know one of the ways it's revealed and it's two ways one is temporal in this life and the other is eternal okay eternal judgment you know how it's revealed? We know what eternal judgment is. It's hell and eternal torment and rebellion against God. You know how it's revealed temporarily? You keep doing that and God's going to give it to you. He's going to let you have it. That's how his wrath would be revealed in that regard. Don't turn away from it. Just keep giving it. You know what? It's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you. You want to, you want to hang on to bitterness? Go for it. And God will allow you to be a bitter person, and it will ruin you. You want to engage in all kinds of immorality, even just play with it? Man, I've got to stop. But it just broke my heart hearing about, um, and I'll have to look into it, and we'll 
do some teaching and I suppose it's kind of help encourage parents about all this awfulness in the social media realm and how it is corrupting young people to the point they find themselves hopelessly engaged in some of those activities and whatnot and scammed and so forth and they kill themselves suicide it brings death that's what all that does so be cautious be careful kill it kill sin before it kills you don't play with the fire of sexual immorality impurity passion evil desires covetousness all of that is idolatry you will literally be burnt in eternal destruction and God may give it to you right now and it will destroy you in this life for the Christian we realize because of the sin in Adam all of us once had no safeguard against the destructive forces of sin but beloved those in Christ you do and that's where we'll leave off for next time. In Christ, we are now being sanctified, Hebrews 1.14. And so then the call, verse 8 here, is now you must put them all away and put off the old and put on Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, I pray we would have a passionate hatred for those things that stand against you. We would recognize in our, the idols of our own heart, whatever they might be, and kill them. Not from the flesh, but from the spirit. Not because of appearances to other people, but because of our affections for you. May you supernaturally work in our heart. May the power of your grace be abundantly evident as you conform us more into the image of your Son, that your name would be honored and glorified in all we do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment now to respond. If you've examined your own heart and you find yourself outside of Christ, you can come now. You can come directly to him, not to me. We'll be around the elders to chat with you, to pray with you if needed. But I'm going to give you a moment to reflect in your own heart. Confess Christ as Lord. If you've examined yourself and been challenged about perhaps some of the idols, perhaps of your own heart, is real basic Christian. Just confess them and go to Christ and commune with him and call him to to give you a different desire, both positively and negatively, positively to, to look and abide in Christ. And by doing so, you'll naturally want to stamp out anything that doesn't look like him. Take a moment now.
grant us that image of Christ, and may we be conformed to him. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was going to be stuck on trust and obey because that is a good expression of faith that results in obedience, but you can't play turn your eyes upon Jesus and us turn away. So we must sing that. It's his providence. What number? 413. Don't you want to sing that and think about Christ right now? Let's stand together as Jerry comes to lead and you sing out as a devotion to Christ to look on him. 413? To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.